Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on LinkedIn you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra start hiring professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com people today hello and welcome to the dabblers book club it's me Hadja Woodland giving you a fourth special with a truly inspiring guest Hashi Mohammed is a barrister, author, broadcaster and public speaker, amongst many other things, including, as you'll hear from this episode, a very wise soul. His memoir, People Like Us, What It Takes to Make It in Modern Britain, is out now in paperback and is absolutely essential reading if you've ever felt a bit stuck in or let down by the British state education system. Or if you've ever punished yourself for not doing enough to get the job or university place you wanted. It might also be the book for you if you're an average person on a six- or seven-figure salary and always wonder why people below you don't just try a bit harder. Described as a vital work of courage and hope, People Like Us explores how Hashi, a Kenyan-born Somali refugee arriving in the UK age nine, went from council housing and poor schooling to a career as a barrister. To put that into perspective, in a country where 7% of people are privately educated, they somehow managed to make up 71% of barristers. That's just one of the many statistics Hashi presents in People Like Us that makes it more than just a memoir. It's a study of class and the barriers that keep people that don't pay for their education out of elite jobs and positions of power. It's not a misery memoir, though. Poignant, nuanced and quite philosophical, it even goes into small steps we can make to get around a system that is so rigged against those without money and privilege. This book really resonated with me, and I think it will with you too. Hashi joined me on Zoom to talk about people like us, but first we kicked things off with a bit of book chat, and he told me why he loves these two books, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Persig and Disgrace by J.M. Curtsy. I didn't want our conversation to end, and I'm sure you'll see why. Enjoy and lap up all that wisdom. Hashi, hi. Hey. How are you? Very well, thanks. How are you? I am very well indeed. It's so good to have you on. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, should we just dive straight into the books and we'll talk about uh, these great titles you shared. So the first one uh, is Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, an inquiry into values, to give it its full title. It's quite a boy book, 
isn't it? Um, yeah. I, I've always heard it recommended by men. It's like, you know, the classic father-son motorcycle exactly. trip, that sort of thing. But it's all very philosophical. Exactly. And I have to say, I think because I had a very, well, have a very philosophical father, um, I'm, I've sort of had it with, <laughs> with yeah. men pontificating over the meaning of life, forcing me to listen to it for three hours. But tell me the draw, <laughs> of, uh, tell me the draw of this book and why is it, why is it so important to you? Yeah, I think I started reading this book around the time when I was trying to qualify as a barrister. And there was a bit of a setback that year because um, as I was qualifying, I didn't make it through one of the last sort of final hurdles. And it's all in the in the history books now and, and nobody will ever remember what happened then really. But at the time, it felt like the world was about to end mm-hmm. and it felt like everything was just crazy and I remember this uh, QC who said to me get this book have a read of it and this is over 10 11 years ago now and I and I picked it up and I just absolutely loved it because as you say it's a, it's quite a philosophical book about a father and son who go and travel from Minneapolis to uh, Northern California on a motorbike with one of those motorbikes which has the side seat mm-hmm. for, a, for a little kid yeah um, Batman and Robin. And exactly, Batman and Robin style. And then he basically goes off on lots of different tangents about life and about philosophy, about the values of life, about what makes us, what what goes on, and and you know, and so on. It's quite dense and it's quite you know you have to stick with it. And I just remember that book helping me really see that moment in my career, in my very nascent career, in its rightful context, and not to be overwhelmed by it not to feel as though the end of the world was nigh and, and so on. And so I, I, I loved it and it's quite a haggard copy and I really do dip in every now and again. And, you know, the final thing I will say is is that trip across the United States is something that I'd love to do with my own son one day. And and, and uh, it's it would be amazing. I don't know how to ride a motorcycle, but I do <laughs> ride a normal bicycle. There's a whole bit in the book about how you take care of your bike just yes. making sure that you really take the time to check the nuts and bolts and all the rest of it. And I I apply the same philosophy to everything I do, whether it's the cooking I do, whether it's the cleaning in the kitchen or whether it's my own bicycle or whatever it is. And and so that's why I wanted to share that particular book with uh, your listeners. It goes into sort of the two sides, doesn't it? I haven't read the book. I've obviously looked looked it up a little bit. And that nurturing and maintaining versus this sort of romantic idea of purpose and destiny and whatever will happen when I happen and, and not actually caring about the details. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. It's really good on that. It's really good on the just being able to zoom out and say, what exactly is happening in my life? Mm-hmm. What is it that is going on? What are the values that underpin it? How do all of these factors play into one another in the grand scheme of things? And it reminds me of a of a quote. I can't remember where I got this quote from, but the book really underpins this theme, which is that there are only two types of problems in the world. There is the problem that you can do something about, mm-hmm. and there is the problem that you can't do anything about. But both of them are problems that you shouldn't really worry about. The problems that you can do something about, you'll solve, and that'll be the end of that. The problems that you can't do anything about, that you can't solve, are not really worth you wasting your time and effort and and, and concentration. And so that, for me, is also part of what this book is about in terms of 
understanding the bigger picture, mm-hmm. keeping these things in perspective, having that, it's not necessarily a patience, but more a, a, a real perspective on what life is about. And I suppose even today, when we're sitting here doing this or in the middle of a global pandemic, <laughs> you know, it really brings into focus what all that means. And I think that's what I love about it the most. I mean, it sold millions and millions of copies. And I, I do think it is. I'm not sure why I, I've got the idea of it being a bit of a boy book. It probably just is the central, you know, father son uh, dynamic. Yeah. There. Um, but what's interesting is that it has sold millions and millions. But actually, if you look back at the the background to it, it got rejected 126 times. Yes. So I've you know, read. it got rejected so many times and he was desperately trying to get anyone but anyone to accept it to take it on and so if it's also another uh, mark of what the book is really about it's also another example of of perseverance and 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 not taking no for an answer it's a story in itself isn't it absolutely do you think it's one of those books as well that was important to you at at that time in your life and dealing with ideas of failure I suppose and realizing what what you're in control of and what you're not in control of but it sounds like something that as you say you, you dip in and out of it must mean whatever you want it to mean as I feel like a lot of books are when they make a connection with you it's a projection of what you need to read absolutely it's one of those books that you can project whatever you want it to mean for you at that time Mm. that's what makes it really special in that sense Um, and, and that allows you to be able to just if you're going through another crisis come back to this book and help yourself to be able to understand what that means and, and focus on it and so on. And he, I'm a big fan of Murakami as well, Harukai Murakami, the Japanese uh, author, and he's written lots of different books that I've read, but he's written a book on running. And I don't know if you are sporty in one particular sport or otherwise, but I do a lot of running and I do a lot of cycling and I play football. Those are my three main sports. Um, and in the book on running is fascinating because ostensibly it's about him trying to run marathons. Yeah. But actually he keeps coming back to how it's helped him with his authorship, how it's helped him on his writing, how it's helped him with his relationship with his wife, how it's helped him with his mental health, how it's helped him on all these things. Mm -hmm. And when he runs and he explains and, you know, really love it because when people ask you when you're running, for example, what are you thinking about? And then he sort of says, actually, when I'm running, I'm not thinking about anything. It's like literally a blank mind. And I often think that as well. But most people who don't run are often looking for some sort of profound answer to that question, you know. Well, it's it's just get through it, isn't it? It's that perseverance. It's like, don't overthink it. I mean, I started, so I'm I'm not a runner. I, I once did a 10K, but... I think it was because I was running with a group of people and it was a, a charity thing. And I I remember just going, just get to the end of the street and you'll be out of breath. And then tomorrow you'll try it again and you'll be slightly less out of breath. And it was that knowledge that just do it, just go through the motions. And I do think um, maybe this is, is pertinent to the whole class conversation, which we'll, we'll get into shortly. But that idea of perseverance is possibly not as embedded in people from difficult backgrounds as it is from privileged ones, because you don't have any guarantee of that payoff. And I think maybe something like running is a good way of seeing that, no, look, these small steps, you don't have to be anything special to be able to get to the end result. Absolutely. And that, again, that's what uh, Robert Persick's books are also about, just understanding and, and focusing and and just projecting those moments. And, mm-hmm. and I think for me also now being father of a young boy, 
knowing that there are ways that you can impart those lessons and philosophy through some physical activity, such as a long motorcycle ride across the United States. It's something that I really am looking forward to doing one day. The other book you said that was important to you is a short book-ish, but quite meaty in its content. Um, So it's Disgraced by J.M. Curtsy. Again, I haven't haven't read this, but I have read one of his works, the speech by Elizabeth Costello, one of his characters on um, vegetarianism. So I, I, I like his writing, so I, I made a note to read this book because it it grapples with a lot of things. Um, so it's the story of a professor set in post-apartheid South Africa, and he's sort of forced out of his job and and leaves his home in the wake of a scandal with a student. I think by today's standards, we would definitely call sexual harassment and rape not a sort of sordid affair. <laughs> and then he goes to live with his daughter. Um, it seems to touch on a lot of things. It, it seems like from what I've read, you don't get that payoff of anyone learning from their lessons. Yeah, and it's also in that sort of period of, of post-apartheid uh, South Africa, it, 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 he published it in, um, I think, something like just over 20 years ago, something like that. And it goes on to win the Booker Prize. But actually, as you say, crucially, it's a very short book. And I remember reading it when I was at law school. And I can't remember who told me to read it or how I came to learn about it. But the bit for me that really captures it is is that for me I really like books which bring to the foreground all of humanity's flaws Mm -hmm. that for me is a book that is worth reading I don't really necessarily like a book that tells a good story but actually doesn't touch upon what I consider to be a universal theme so this is a book, as you say, the professor who, who gets banished, he goes to live with his daughter in the Eastern Cape. His daughter is somebody, she's a, she's a lesbian who then gets raped and gets impregnated by the person who's raped her. Well, yeah, connected to neighbours, isn't it? They suspect yeah, her. Yeah, and she decides to keep the baby. Mm-hmm. What struck me as well was the way the best books are, the ones that, that end abruptly. You know, this is one of those books that just ends like off a cliff edge. You're led up this mountain. And it's sort of this tension between father and daughter. Um, she gets, you know, horrible, horrible experience. She decides to keep the baby. But actually, again, human flaws, what life is about and all the rest of it. This happens in South Africa. Yeah. This has happened in South Africa. You know, this is a reality of what post-apartheid South Africa looks like. This is the reality of what a country that has gone through such pain and sorrow and horrible, horrible past leads to. Mm. And so that's for me is it's the human themes. It's the way it's so viscerally uh, connected to real life stories. It's the way that it's so simplistically written. It doesn't try and complicate the language. It doesn't try and sort of uh, reach for some high faluting kind of uh, jargon and then it's that abrupt ending that then crucially compels you in your own mind to fill in the gaps. Yeah. So you can then write the kind of next chapter, if you like. And I think that's what really was was what's special about it for me. Does it not leave you feeling depressed <laughs> if you're not getting any sort of resolution? or? No, it doesn't, because I, I like to think that I'm a writer now as well. Mm-hmm. One of the things I remember, we'll get to this when, when I was writing my book, is one of the hardest things that a writer faces, I think, is this extraordinary feeling that before you've even started writing a book, you are almost compelled 
to start thinking about how it should end. I remember talking to uh, William Boyd, famous William Boyd. Uh, he said to me, he said to me, I always meticulously plan the ending. And then you read other people like Philip Pullman, whose books I, uh, I absolutely adore, his fantasies, John Grisham's books, the law, legal ones that I used to read a long time ago, or even Stephen King. You know, they always say, don't worry about the ending. Yeah. The ending will will write itself. Whereas somebody like William Boyd, a very successful author, was like, no, 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 I meticulously plan exactly what the ending is going to be. And so for me, it's if you free yourself as an author from this burden that compels you to want to actually write the ending, mm-hmm. think through what the ending is before you get there, I think that you 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 do yourself a disservice because I think I think the best writing is the kind of writing that throughout the book allows the audience and the reader to fill in the blanks because you then are appealing to their best nature and you're appealing to their consciousness and you're appealing to their imagination. And you don't need to put that pressure on yourself to paint every picture. You can paint the framework, put in a couple of colors, but let them decide what the picture looks like. And I think that's what Kutsi does really well. Yes, he does. I mean, just from what I remember reading his keynote speech that his character Elizabeth Costello gives on um, on animal rights and, and vegetarianism. Yeah, he's he's got a very yeah doesn't doesn't overcomplicate it. It's when the writing doesn't get in the way of the story or the, all they're trying to say. Um, but there is no right way. I mean, I I did a write a master's in creative writing. And uh, I still don't know if it was a good use of my time, um, but better than me. I don't know. I haven't done any course at all. So, <laughs> but you've got you've got the book out. <laughs> I think that's. Yeah, the... I always say, just get it out. Just get writing. Yeah, I think there's something about when you study writing and you see all the different approaches, and yeah, there's literally there's no there's no right way. There is only your way, and you know, in the same way as running, it's just going through the process, the motions of getting it down. It doesn't, not everything has to be a work of art. Some things are literally just saying, look, this is my story. And this is the only way I know how to tell it. Absolutely. And even uh, Richard Osman, who's now romping at the top of the bestsellers list with his amazing Thursday murder club, I think it's called. It's his first book and he's 50 something now. And I remember sort of seeing an interview with him and he was like, the one thing I always say to people is just write mm. it down. You can then work out the the details. You can then work out where you need to improve on, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Just get it down, whatever it is. And yeah. I think that for me is the best lesson. Probably a good time to move on to yeah. to people like us. So it's it's sort of memoir with obviously a social purpose, part memoir, part study of social mobility and class in this country. So you're a broadcaster, author, public speaker, and obviously a barrister. Uh, why in this country does being a barrister, when you're from your background, make headlines? What does that say? It's a very good question. Somebody who is from my background, uh, sort of a young, unaccompanied child refugee without his parents arriving in in Blighty with no understanding of the language, the culture, the way of life, no adult to help make sense of it, growing up in some of the most deprived communities, raised exclusively on state benefits, going to very poor performing schools. I mean, the odds are really not in my favour, are they? Let's be honest. And so in that sense, me being where I am now in a profession which is extremely dominated by middle class 
public school educated Oxbridge elite mm -hmm. uh, people predominantly, if not exclusively when I got in, much more improved now, still a long way to go in reality, um, is, is quite a, a, a remarkable journey. And mm -hmm. so in that sense, what I have done or what I have achieved is quite different and, and hopefully um, inspiring to a lot of people who, who haven't had that. And so, so that's, uh, that's the best way to, to summarize it. Well, absolutely. I mean, of course, it's, it's inspirational. I think it's, for me, there's a certain level of anger that comes with this shouldn't be the state of our of our country. Um, I feel that absolutely class is. I think I spent so long, and, and forgive me because I'm going to keep interrupting you and just throwing out all the things that I, that we all brought, book brought up. No, but please. I think especially in a country where we are so preoccupied with identity and social division, whether it's race or religion or sex, all these things we and you you do mention this in your book it's like we forget we don't we have more in common with people of our own social class than we do the people of our same color or religion or whatever on tv or um you know the higher echelons of society i and i spent so long being preoccupied by so i was a hijabi muslim growing up you know from five till 18 i wore a headscarf um and working class but sort of aspirational so I didn't realize that the system was already rigged against me I felt so I, I didn't even realize actually that wearing a headscarf on my foreign name was a barrier as well and it's and I spent so long sort of dissecting all this and then it's only been the last five years I thought I know it was class it was class all along it that was yeah. really holding me back it wasn't actually so obviously there's intersections where on top of that you get sex and religion and race and all that but actually if you can navigate class you can then learn to steer or maneuver yourself around all those other barriers and and this really was just such a powerful reminder of that and it's not just yeah. me and people are seeing this and all those things that you feel internally it's not a personality thing. It's a class thing. Definitely. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Haja, because... And I've been attacked for saying this, actually, and, and it's been quite controversial in an age where social mobility or social ills are discussed in the context of race and ethnicity that then only really looks at it through the lens of that particular community. Mm -hmm. And the trouble with that, as I argue, is, is that especially in a country like this, 
where class is perhaps one of, if not the most prevailing issue across the board in terms of what kind of life you lead, what kind of community you grow up in, what kind of aspirations you have, what kind of future you're likely to have, and much more besides, Mm -hmm. class is undoubtedly the most sort of dominating thing that goes on in your life. And so it was really important for me to be able to write a book that says, listen, if you are somebody called Hashim Mohammed growing up in Northwest London, I have a very strong connection with somebody like Kaja, who's growing up in the East Midlands or wherever, going to similar crap schools, burdened with foreign names, not understanding the cultural capital of what we're missing, mm-hmm. not ever meeting somebody who does the kind of jobs that we might aspire to, yeah. we have a better and a stronger connection than I would have with a black guy who went to Eton yeah. or who is uh, uh, growing up in a middle class and very, uh, you know, kind of affluent community. But just because we are both black doesn't necessarily follow that we connect. And so how do we galvanize ourselves and actually draw the links and the connections that matter through those areas that we have a common uh, ground that we can build on is for me, and again, I might be wrong. I'm not, I don't know. I don't have all the answers, but that to my mind is, is, is my perspective and my way of looking at where we are and and some people might disagree and just say it's all about race some people might disagree and say it's all about gender mm-hmm. fine but my analysis is is that actually it's far more complicated and class is still for me the countervailing issue there what do you think that the BBC did a survey you know a short while ago and they sort of had seven new social classes they identified which they talk about cultural capital but also I think well if you don't have money then that doesn't really matter if you don't have money or connections it doesn't matter what your aspirations are and actually I was talking to a friend the other day we were saying all these schemes we see they're clearly designed by middle class people because they think aspiration is the problem they think wanting to be better or wanting to make money or wanting an education is you know we're missing out on if we wanted it enough it's like no I literally don't have money in the bank I don't have a house to fall back on the risk is so high um, and so there's no way of offsetting that risk for, I think, people from low-income backgrounds. A hundred percent. And they just don't understand. One example that might be useful to your listeners in the legal profession, if you are trying to become a barrister today, mm-hmm. say, for example, and you don't have a law degree and you want to do a law conversion course, and then you want to come to, to the bar and then you want to study what's called the vocational course mm-hmm. to train to become a barrister. And then you're looking for what's called a pupillage. Now, let me give you a, a picture of all the ways in which throughout that process, the system is completely rigged against us. You have not only the undergraduate course fees, living accommodation and all of that. If you manage to get through all of that, you then have the conversion course if you did anything other than law so if you did a science degree or something else you have to convert 
Then the bar course itself is about fifteen, sixteen thousand pounds for one year, and that's just the fees, no living costs, no maintenance, nothing else. If you manage to get over that somehow, you then have to try and apply for a job, which is essentially a pupilage, and that job is for one year to be trained within as chambers. Now. I can recite the statistics, but quite frankly, the odds are extremely high and you're facing extremely long odds yeah. if you're able to do that. Then after that, if you manage to cross that hurdle and you're established in a set of chambers, you are faced with a good five years during which time you need to get your name out there during which time you need to build a reputation and a following. Now, during those five years, Chambers will help you with work that will keep you ticking along. You won't starve. You won't struggle to pay the bills, provided you go into the yeah. right area of law. If you go into commercial law at the beginning in a good set of Chambers, you'll be fine. If you go into criminal law, you're pretty much in trouble. You're, you're barely going to be making minimum wage, quite frankly, with legal aid and the way that it's going. And now, if in those five years that you're trying to establish yourself, one of the big ways in which people establish themselves is that you have to do effectively unpaid work or marketing work or really dog's body work for practically nothing. Now, you tell me. If you're coming from a background where you need to pay rent in London and you don't have the bank of mum and dad to fall on, are you telling me that you can afford mentally, physically, monetarily, can you afford to be doing work for free? Can you afford to hope that in some long distance across the mountaintop, you will get to a position when in fact your competitors, your colleagues from privileged backgrounds can sit back and look at mum and dad and go, listen, help me get my mortgage. Yeah. I'll be fine in about five years and I'll pay you back and deal, have that deal with their parents. Or somebody like me who might already have dependents in, in my sister, my cousins, my auntie, my family who depend on me. What am I going to do with them if, if for the next five years I'm not really gainfully employed? That's just one example in the legal profession of how the system works that these people just don't understand. So that's only if it goes smoothly. If you get any setbacks at all, I mean, for a small example, I needed a tiny bit of advice from my university and they have this scheme that's meant to help entrepreneurs. And I have an English surname now, but obviously I have my very Muslim name. And I was up against someone just being quite difficult. And we had a little back, back and forth and she just wasn't understanding me. And then she asked, can I just check your alumna? And you have that paranoia that is this because of my name? Is there something I'm not doing right? Why do I not? Why would you not think that? I know it's silly, but when you get that on top of the exhaustion of navigating this system, and so you're dealing with gatekeepers essentially. And I thought, am I back here? Maybe not, but it's that paranoia that doesn't go away. And that, are you in the right place? You know? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I was thinking about that now um, with my son. What, what were we going to name him? Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. where are we going to name him? Now, I know that I, I've managed to do well with my name, but we picked a name knowing full well that in the future it will put him in good stead. Now, those are the kind of conscious decisions that you have to make 
that our parents didn't really think about. So yeah, no, you're right. There is that microaggression and it's exhausting. And when you're thinking to yourself, I just ought to be concentrating. I ought to just simply be concentrating on doing the job well. I do not have to, or I shouldn't have to really be focusing on how do I neutralize your prejudices? That shouldn't be part of my CV. That shouldn't be part of the job description, but it is. And that's the reality of the world that we live in. There is a real responsibility on gatekeepers, I think, to go that extra mile, to check themselves. How might this be perceived? Will this put someone off? Because I think growing up, you think you can act your class. Yeah, and, yeah, and I yeah, think yeah. that's quite yeah, a big yeah. myth, isn't it? You see all these people in the way they're talking, you think, well, if I just mimic how they talk and I fit in and I, and I do the do the dance. But actually, you talk about confidence in your book, which is such an important thing. And it's not it's not a performative confidence. It's a real deep inbuilt confidence you have to have which neutralizes that risk like you have to know that what you're doing is worth it um can you speak more about confidence in your own life and how you've grappled with that i was thinking about this this morning actually i mean it takes time and it's not something that gets to you overnight and it's not something that you should burden yourself with in a way that says you either have it or you don't Mm -hmm. Confidence comes from um, both within and without. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the without, in terms of the society that you live in, the more you see people like you, it's no accident that I titled the book People Like Us, the more you see people like you from your background, who sound like you, who share the similar experiences to you, who come from similar backgrounds to you, in the kind of places that you aspire to be in, the more your confidence will be bolstered, Mm -hmm. the more you will want to aspire, the more you will feel like those places are for you, the more you will feel settled and the more you will want to actually go out into the world. And obviously the opposite means that you're 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 going to be far away from that. The more likely it is that you're going to have uh, imposter syndrome. The more you're going to have a lots of other issues. Mm-hmm. From within, it's really important, I argue, that you settle once and for all, as best you can, any niggling doubts that you might have, any issues that you might be facing, and think through where they come from how they have affected your psyche, Mm -hmm. how they have affected the kind of person you are today, how that has affected the relationship you have with other people, Mm -hmm. the kind of loving relationships that you have with friends, with your partner, and so on. And, you know, I, I was thinking about it the other day. The key thing that I talk about in the book that has been a big factor in my life is the death of my father. My father died when I was nine in a car crash in Kenya and you know it took about a good decade for me to grieve properly for me to really digest all of that and for me to get to a place where I can actually slowly move on with with my life and it's interesting because I believe that actually everyone man or woman has this really weird thing about their fathers it's hard to 
actually explain. I don't think it works with mums for some reason. I think mums are there and they love you unconditionally, right? For the most part. So the dad is an issue that is in your mind that affects you in a way that, that kind of actually, I think, affects your progress in your life and how you see others. I really do. And then if you think about the folklore, our cultural capital as a whole in society, if you think about, if you think about it in biblical terms, I'm going off on a tangent a little bit about, about confidence, but I promise you it's all linked. If you think about, you know, in biblical terms, you know, uh, God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. Mm-hmm. And then you look at a movie, you know, Luke Skywalker is, is trying to find his yeah. father, you know, um, uh, I can give you countless other examples of stories that are told that always keep coming back to the dad issue. Yeah. So I'm giving you that one example as being something that was an issue for me mm-hmm. that was going to affect my confidence. And so for me, it was really important that I interrogated that issue back to basic first principles and then understood how it's affected me as a, as a human being, how it's affected my outlook, how it's affected the world that I see and so on, and, and hopefully settle it. Yeah. And I think that is a big part of the confidence that I carry today. And that for me is a big, and for you, for example, it may be how your hijab has has affected. Oh, it's definitely the father as well. <laughs> oh, definitely the In father as well. Ways, there you go. Yes. <laughs> but you see what I mean. That's yeah. the, so that's the that's the within and then the without. I have to I have to ask you about your head teacher. There's this horrific scene in your book, and you describe from your adolescence where your head teacher is assaulted repeatedly by a parent, and the next day, battered and bruised, he's in assembly, and you will laugh, and he never yeah. came back. And I read that scene just shaking. It was like a novel where I wanted the ending to be different. I imagine like writing your memoir, you do talk about how emotional it was and a lot of tears shed over it. There must have been a real balance between sort of giving yourself a hug for everything you've been through and sort of forgiveness of moments like that. What was writing that scene like? It's a, it's a horrible scene where Mr. Shaw, as I call him, and changed his name, gets assaulted because he permanently excluded a young student who's who was having issues in, in school. Writing that was quite cathartic in the sense that it's probably one of the most defining events that I remember from the school. But what's different, I suppose, to writing about it was that at the time when it was happening, genuinely, I, I remember thinking, this is just another day at school. This is literally just another day at this completely mad and dysfunctional school but writing it I remember thinking gosh this is absolutely shocking this is so shocking that I cannot believe that this is the kind of school that I attended and how did I not come out of there completely destroyed worn out all of the above and so for me Writing it was quite cathartic, but it also really put into perspective what a shocking, disturbing, difficult and completely unbelievable experience school was. And I wanted it to be out there so that people understand it and people fully appreciate it in a way that that really puts into sharp focus what that experience was about. And it's normal 
it's not the exception. Exactly. Exactly. There was nothing exceptional about it. And so that was the real thing. And, and it was hard to write it. But I'm glad I did because it has resonated with a lot of people out there. I, I don't know if you've read Grace. I mean, I, I know Grace and Perry left a testimonial on the cover of your book. Have you read his Descent of Man? I wish I could lie and say I, I had, but I haven't. And I met Grayson. Um, he's such a lovely guy. He read my book and, and he and I were on a radio program together where he was reciting back passages of my book to me. <laughs> and I was so, so overtaken with joy. But no, I haven't, sadly. Well, he has a bit on that sort of intersection of masculinity, hyper-masculinity and class as well, and this need for territory, especially in sort of council estates and, and stuff where, like, all kids have, is, and all boys have, is this is my turf, and that definitely bleeds into, into school. Can you outgrow your class in your own lifetime? And I'm thinking you speak about in your book that conflict between not wanting to uphold the system, but also wanting to the best for your children. And um, what class do you feel like you are? Do you feel a faker in one way or the other? It's a good question. And I, I would strongly recommend that you read a recent work that was done by Sam Friedman at the London School of Economics. He wrote an article in The Guardian about people who pretend to be working class when they have completely left that community. And even though they are fully paid up members of middle classes, whether by, by, by cultural capital or by, um, by virtue of, of, of um, any other test, i.e. income or whatever. Um, and yet they will say, oh, my grandmother was, was a cleaner in a school, you know. And so I'm not going to pretend. Listen, I'm a first-generation immigrant. I came here as a refugee. And now, by all measures, if you were to look at my cultural capital, how I speak, what job I have, what home I live in and all the rest of it, by all standards, I would be categorized as middle classes. Um, but I'm genuinely going to be giving you a boring answer in the sense that I just don't buy into this crap. I just don't buy into these distinctions because I just want to live my life in a way that, that sees it as, as a good quality of life where I have options. Remember earlier on, we were talking about money and how debt and opportunity and income can be so limiting when it comes to opportunity. Mm -hmm. For me, the biggest challenge and the biggest issue for me is always, do I have options? Do I have the option to send my kid to whatever school I want? Do I have the option to go on as many holidays as I'd like? Do I have the option to do fun things, go out and all the rest of it? If I have options, then I belong to a class that isn't definable because I think it's a class that is quite luxurious. Yeah. And, and I think that for me is the biggest question really is where are you by virtue of the options that are available to you in life? And the more options that are available to you, the better that your life is, quite frankly whatever class you think you are doesn't really matter that's a really good way of looking at it and a very uplifting way to actually end our conversation and yeah thank you so much for having me on thank you so much this is absolutely brilliant take care bye bye i'm sure you found that as insightful and inspiring as i did you can buy people like us what it takes to make it in modern britain through all major retailers if you'd like to find out more about hashi head to his website hashimohammed.com See you next time.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.